Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host tonight, and we have Sarit Lashinsky with us to do our audio engineering. Now, for some background, here on Teen Scientist, I aim to bring listeners stories of groundbreaking innovation from the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics disciplines, all from a teenage perspective. We highlight STEM stories locally and from around the world with young students or experts in their fields, and also feature excellence in high school independent research and technological developments, which leads me into our guest today, Jason Wang. Jason is a senior from Brentwood High School, all the way from Tennessee. He's a Regeneron Science Talent Search finalist, interested in cell and developmental biology, and he plans to attend MIT for his undergraduate studies this fall. Welcome, Jason. How are you? I'm doing good. Hi, Raina. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We clearly have a lot to cover, but before we get started, let's get to know more about you. So, as excited as I am to hear about your research, why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? So, like you said, I'm 18. I'm a senior at Brentwood High School in Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm also a researcher in the Makara Lab at Vanderbilt University. And like you mentioned earlier, I work in the Department of Cell and Developmental Biology. Um, I recently was a Regeneron finalist, which has been an amazing experience, and now I'm excited to be on your show so I can talk to your listeners a little bit more about research from a high school perspective and what it means to be a high school researcher and how you can capitalize on that to talk more about your research to a greater audience. Amazing. And I'm really excited to, you know, learn more about your experiences and your research. Now, you would say you're a pretty STEM-oriented person, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, even from a young age, my mom used to tell me that the only books I'd read were science books, and I would love to do experiments that I read about, uh, no matter, you know, whether or not it was just a baking soda and vinegar volcano, and I guess gradually some more complicated things, but I have been surrounded by science, and I have loved STEM my entire life, as far as I can remember. So would you say your hobbies and extracurricular activities reflect that as well? How do you kind of spend your free time? Yeah, definitely. So I am part of a youth leadership group at the Adventure Science Center in Nashville, Tennessee, called CREW. So CREW is kind of a group of high schoolers, and what we do is we try to bridge and form connections between the Adventure Science Center and also the greater Nashville community. So we are responsible for doing a lot of things, honestly, but mostly we help guests with exhibits and understanding the science behind things, We also facilitate discovery cart activities, which are where guests can come and see an experiment that we're highlighting. And also we help run programs and events that the center hosts from time to time. But most importantly, we just want to show people that science is more than really uh, guys in white lab coats and super high-level labs. We want to show people that science is really a a day-to-day thing, and we can't even do the most basic activities without science behind the scenes. Absolutely. And you said that was called CREW. Does that stand for something, or is that just the name? So it's CR3W, and the three stands for, I think it's like Engage, Explore, and another E that I can't remember off the top of my head. All right, that sounds great. And do you play any sports as well? I'm actually a swimmer, and I've been swimming for around 12 years now, so a really long time, and I'll actually be on the varsity team in college this fall. So it's been a huge part of my life, and I've really enjoyed it from, 
you know, just getting to be part of a team, which means something greater than yourself, and also just meeting new people from all across the South and other states. And interestingly, though, I actually started swimming because my parents wanted me to have a skill that would help me be safe in the pool. But from there, it kind of just developed. And my really early swim coach who, you know, my parents hired was like, well, you should join a team because you're actually pretty good at swimming. So I joined the team and then I've just been swimming competitively from then on. That's great. Well, congratulations on your swimming achievements. Now, I do want to ask, what kind of clubs and organizations do you participate in that you have leadership roles in? I know you mentioned crew, but is there anything else, either inside or outside of school, um, that you have a strong leadership role in? Mm -hmm. So I was a team captain for our high school swim team. So I do both high school swimming and club swimming. And actually, this most recent season, our high school placed first among all the public schools in the entire state of Tennessee at the state competition, which was a really big achievement for us just because we've never done that great recently before. So I was really proud to be able to captain such a strong team this year. And, you know, I'm also just really proud of the work that everybody puts in to help the overall achievement of the team. That's amazing. Congratulations. And you do seem to be pretty busy with all of these hobbies and extracurriculars. What advice would you give to other students interested in these same activities, you know, with how to get into them and how to manage their time if they want to balance all of these things at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question, especially because I think that nowadays it's kind of easy to get caught up in accomplishments or achievements just for a resume. But I think the most important thing for students who are interested in you know, whether it be athletics or volunteer work or serving in leadership capacity, is you ultimately just need to have a passion for the things that you're doing, especially um, when it comes down to managing time. You're going to find that things are a lot easier to schedule into your day-to-day life when it's something that you really enjoy doing and not something that you're just doing because you think it will look good for an application. Absolutely. I now want to transition into your science experience. Starting from a young age, you said you had been reading books and you've always been interested in it. What kind of resources did you have access to in elementary and middle school that allowed you to pursue your passion for STEM? Another thing that I had the opportunity, which wasn't really something that I created for myself, but my dad is a doctor, so I guess you could kind of say I was born into a family that already had science as a background, which was very useful because that was actually the first time I got a chance to look under an optical microscope was because my dad is a pathologist, and so he looks at slides all the time. And when I got to see that there's this world underneath the microscope that I couldn't see with my naked eyes, I was like pretty fascinated in terms of there's so many things that you know, you don't see are there, but they actually are there. And science gives you the tools to be able to investigate these hidden beauties. And as an elementary school student, I was very lucky to also have great teachers. And in particular, my science teacher when I was in elementary school really helped make science fun. I think that that's an important thing because when you're in elementary school, you're not really going to be captivated if science is just equations and worksheets and things like that. So My uh, science teacher really turned everyday concepts and scientific ideas into reality and turning them fun in some sort of way, so it really engaged me. And I still remember he also sometimes would do experiments with me even on the weekend, which, you know, as a teacher, he didn't have to do that. But 
by uh, encouraging me to learn and by taking the time to help me with my science education, he really showed me that science is such a supportive community. And now looking back on your experiences as an elementary student, is there anything you wish you had access to that a lot of students still don't have these days? Like what is something that you would change about your experience as an elementary or middle school student that you wish you could have taken advantage of? I'm not sure if it's something that I would be able to change per se, but I think that the most important thing as an elementary and middle school student is having great science teachers. So one thing that, um, you know, I think can be discouraging for people at a young age, which, by the way, research has shown that the ages 11 through 13 are the most important years for science engagement and a passion for science. So I think that around that time period, the most important thing is having great teachers who are passionate Number one, about science, of course, and number two, about teaching science, because I think that those are two very different things. And like I was saying, that's something I'm very lucky to have, but I think that one thing I would change is maybe if all science teachers were that way, of course, that might be not like a a real possibility, but that would, of course, be the one thing that I think would be the most impactful for me and also for other kids. Amazing. And I now want to transition back to your achievement with the Science Talent Search, or STS, which we've actually talked about with one of our previous guests, Victor Kai. But to just remind our listeners how impressive this is, STS is the nation's oldest and most prestigious science and math competition for high school seniors. Each year, around 2,000 student entrants submit original research in fields of study that they are then judged by leading experts. 40 finalists were selected this year based on the creativity and impact of the research, as well as their achievement and leadership both inside and outside of the classroom. Jason, what were you doing when you got the phone call that you were selected as a finalist? How did you react? Yeah, so this is kind of a funny story. So I did not expect to be a finalist in any world. And so I went to swim practice that day. I knew that they were going to give calls to the 40 finalists, but since I did not think I was one of them, I just went to swim practice and I remember we got out of the water to have our team meeting, and I was like, maybe I should just check my phone because someone else probably got it, and I want to see who got it. So I remember looking at my phone, and it told me that there was a missed call, which my phone labeled spam, and I went to go look up the area code because I was like, well, what if there's a 1% chance that this is D.C. and that this is a deity calling me? And it turns out that phone number was from D.C., so... I immediately called them back, and I just remember when they were telling me that I was a finalist, I could not believe it. I was in the corner of the pool deck. I was, like, jumping up and down and screaming, and everyone was looking at me. But, um, yeah, it was definitely one of the most surprising and exciting moments of my life, So, and obviously life-changing. That's a really sweet memory to have, and I'm glad that, you know, you were able to finally realize that it was the society. Um, what compelled mm-hmm. you to actually apply? And I know you didn't expect anything major to come out of it, but what initially got you to, you know, submit that application? So I remember my freshman year of high school, my mom actually told me about this um, STS competition, and I remember looking up the STS finalists for that year, which was I think like 2019 or something, but I was looking through these people that submitted their own research four years ago. And I remember thinking as a freshman, of course, I was like, wow, there's no way that they actually did this by themselves because no high schooler could be capable of this amazing kind of research. Well, fast forward four years later, and now I was like, maybe I am capable of doing something like this. And so that was kind of what compelled me to apply was like, 
I think I'm capable of doing some sort of high-level research, and now I'm finally in position to have a project to submit. And it's always been a dream of mine to be able to compete with the best of the best. Yeah, that's kind of how uh, I applied. And as far as like expectations, like you said, I never expected to be a finalist, but I did think that it was just such a prestigious program to apply to, so I should do it if I have uh, the project to submit. Yeah, and that's a great reason to apply, and I'm glad that you got something out of it after finding mm-hmm. out about it so long ago. Who were mm-hmm. your major support systems throughout the application process? Was there any specific teacher or were your parents involved? Who helped you the most? Yeah, so I mean, honestly, there are just too many people to thank for support, but a couple major ones, of course. My parents and my family, I have to say, they probably hear me talk about my research more than anyone, and obviously I can kind of sympathize for people that have to hear me talk about science all the time. I know it might get a little bit boring, but they never show that. They're always encouraging of my work, and um, whether or not it's a successful experiment or a failed experiment, they've always been there to listen to me talk, and so obviously I have them to thank for that. And then, of course, from my school side of things, my counselor has been super supportive of me because I'm one of the few researchers at my high school, so it's not like the administration has a lot of experience with these sort of competitions. But, you know, the administration and my high school counselor have been very supportive of me. My AP biology teacher has always listened to me talk about my project and has been very encouraging of the fact that I have taken my science and specifically biology education a step further, and she actually gave me a chance to present my research to the biology department at our high school. So that was very kind of her, and I think it was really cool to be able to show other teachers at my high school that high schoolers are capable of doing research. And then, of course, I'm super thankful for everyone in the Makara lab. I'm really thankful for my PI, Dr. Ian Makara, for giving me this wonderful opportunity, and my mentor, who is a graduate student in the department, Christian, he supported me in almost every single aspect, just from applying to how to be a researcher. I mean, the most fundamental things he's taught me. And so these are just some of the people that I have to thank, although like, I'm sure if I thought more about it, the list would go on for much longer. Well, I'm glad you were able to have such a strong support system throughout this process. Now, before we get into the actual details of your project, we're going to pause for a quick break. But when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Regeneron finalist Jason Wang. My name is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist. WDIY Allentown, 88.1, Lehigh Valley Public Radio. Many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Teen Scientist. This is Raina Malhotra, your host, and on the phone with me is Regeneron finalist and high school senior Jason Wang. Now, Jason, can you explain what exactly your research is about? Yeah, so I work on epithelial cells, which are a very special type of cell because they line most of our body's internal and external surfaces, and also the skin, which is our largest organ, and you can even see it, which is something special about it, are all epithelial cells. And so what I did for my project was I looked at how RAS, which is a protein that is very highly linked to cancers, affect epithelial growth and also epithelial polarity. So what I mean by polarity is that epithelial cells are also special in the sense that they have a very clearly defined top and bottom, and different proteins are located at different areas within an epithelial cell. 
and one protein called E-cadherin, which are along the sides of every epithelial cell, works to join neighboring cells together. So what I found was that when I activated this protein called RAS and I forced it to be constantly active, which is what we see in many cancers, E-cadherin, this protein that normally joins cells together, begins to get removed from the surface and internalized into the cells. So it means that neighboring epithelial cells um, are no longer as sticky and connected to one another as they should be. Got it. And now can you explain how these cancer cells even function and how the cadherin protein even becomes defective? Yeah. So RAS, one of its pathways is linked to cell growth. And so how these cancer cells function is when RAS is constantly turned on. So our body normally knows when to turn RAS on or off. When it's constantly turned on, the cells start to divide out of control and they no longer receive the sort of stopping signals that normal cells receive. And so this cadherin protein becomes defective when it's no longer on the outside surface of the cells. So e-cadherin can only do its job when it's presented on the outside cell membrane, and then neighboring cells have other e-cadherin proteins that join with e-cadherin protein on other cells. So if it's not on the cell surface, it can't connect with other cells um, as well. How were you able to identify how the RAS protein affected this process? So I started my project just for looking for very general changes in cell polarity that happens when RAS is acutely induced. So I looked for many different proteins, and I started this project when I found that e-cadherin displayed this very abnormal appearance. And from there, I did a variety of experiments, but one important one was inhibiting a certain pathway that RAS is upstream of. And what I found was that when I turned a certain pathway off, I could actually reverse the kind of cancerous appearance of the cells. Oh, okay. And what inspired this project for you? So, um, you know, of course, I work in cell biology because I'm very interested in how bodies function and how life functions at the molecular level. But in terms of specifically for this project, I was mostly inspired just because, you know, oh, there's this cool appearance and I want to discover how it's happening. So the mechanism behind what I'm seeing. And what did the timeline for this project look like? How long did the entire experimental process and research process take for you? It kind of depended on what day it was, because during the summer I had a lot more time to go into the lab. But I still can go to the lab on a daily basis. But I started this project around June. so I had those two months to get my training and learn because this is my first time stepping into a lab. So I got to learn, you know, how do labs work and what important safety things do I need to learn before I start. And then from there, I was able to devote a lot of time towards my research and even, um, you know, weekends when my mentor was there. So overall, I think I had like definitely at least 1,300 hours put into this work. But yeah, and I'm still continuing my work now too. And what experimental methods did you use to gather this data? And were these processes new for you? Did you have to completely learn new protocols? Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, everything that I have done for this project has been brand new to me. The main experimental methods that I use in my work are immunofluorescence, which is pretty much when you have an antibody target an antigen of interest. So in my 
case since I'm looking at RAS and ecadherin, and also another protein called P120. I am using immunofluorescence so I can see these proteins, and proteins normally are not visible. They don't usually, they don't naturally have a color. So what we can do is we can target them with antibodies that do have colors on them and molecules called fluorophores that will fluoresce. And through using a special type of microscopy that is laser powered, we can actually see where these proteins are located within the cell. And the second technique I use a lot in my work is Western blotting. It's very similar to a DNA gel electrophoresis in the sense that You have proteins and you use a chemical to give the proteins a negative charge, but this negative charge is in a size-dependent ratio. So you can use an electric current to separate out proteins by size, Um, and that's really useful because you can see whether or not you're getting increases or decreases in a certain protein level. And, of course, you can separate out proteins so you can be sure that you can look for larger proteins and smaller proteins, and you're not just looking in one big pile of a bunch of proteins together. Wow. And I actually do use Western blotting and immunofluorescence for my research as well. So I can relate with how, you know, intensive and complicated they can be. So, yeah, much respect for you for using those. Um, You did mention that you did your research in a lab. Which lab did you work at? I work in the Makara lab at Vanderbilt University, and, you know, we're in the Department of Cell and Developmental Biology, and we're also a basic sciences lab, so I think that that's an important aspect of the work that I do, because unlike some translational research labs, which are solely focused on how can we use research and make it into something immediately beneficial for humans and for health, we are more focused on how do things happen. So our primary interest is not how can we turn this work into something that will immediately help people, but our work is more if we discover how certain mechanisms occur, then translational researchers can use our work to um, create products or devices that will eventually help people. So it's kind of a two-step process, and we're like the most foundational work. Absolutely. And I will touch on how exactly you got this position later, but I first want to ask, what are the real-world applications of your research? Yeah, so since my research was focusing on changes that occur within these cells in less than 24 hours, I think that the biggest real-world application is just that my work will hopefully be able to open people's eyes to realize that cancer development is not really only just a long-term process like most people believe it is, but we can actually see super drastic molecular changes in a less than a one-day time period. And so that's really important because if we change the narrative on when cancer is diagnosable and how to treat it, we can potentially save lives by catching it earlier. Yeah, definitely. And how is your research different from other research in the same field? Like I mentioned earlier, my research is one of the first ones to look at things from a less than 24-hour perspective. A lot of research looking at the interplay between RAS and other proteins study it from months after uh, RAS has been induced. And so that's kind of a problem because if we only understand how these proteins interact in the months and months stage, we could be missing a lot of really valuable information that occurs in a very, very early time period that is usually overlooked. And what would you say the future of research in this field looks like? 
So I think that the future of research in my field, in particular in basic sciences, is just how can we understand how different oncogenic-related processes occur within the cell, but I think more broadly just in terms of translational work and clinical work using basic science research would be definitely how we can treat cancers earlier. And, you know, because when a cancer is at its infancy, that's when it's most vulnerable and at its weakest point and more um, localized in one point because there isn't any metastasis occurring yet. And so I think the future will definitely be focusing on what markers can we identify that occur early in the cancer formation process rather than later. I now want to touch on the fact that you haven't really had years of wet lab or lab experience in general going into this. You Mm -hmm. only started working in a lab nine months ago, which compared to a lot of other people you see at these research competitions, you know, you're starting pretty late in the game. So I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. first, how did you get this position in a lab? I started working in this lab through cold emailing. And it was kind of a last-ditch effort. There wasn't, like, a program that I was a part of. So I knew I really wanted to do research, though. So, And like you were saying, it is pretty late. And so I knew I had to do something drastic. So I honestly, I went to the faculty list at Vanderbilt and the departments I was interested in. I drafted an interest email talking about me and my experience in science and my passions. And I just started sending them to a bunch of professors. And so I think when everything was all said and done, I actually had contacted around 104 different professors at Vanderbilt before I got a couple of positive responses. And so once I got into a lab, of course, since I knew I wanted to submit a project to Regeneron STS, I definitely knew that there wasn't time to waste and I had to work really, really hard double time just to catch up for you know the years that I hadn't been in the lab before. And speaking from personal experience, I can really understand how intimidating it is when you get started in a university-level research lab for the very first time. So how were you Mm -hmm. able to persevere and overcome that initial phase of intimidation and fear going into this? I think that the biggest thing for me to realize was I was accepted to this lab for a reason. If the PI believes in me, then I should believe in myself as well. Um, And kind of just understanding that With every difficult task, there is a starting point. So it's just you have to take that first step and then, I guess, gradually learn and uh, grow your way through the rest of it. But I think just kind of believing in yourself is going to be the most important thing. And throughout this whole process, as a mere high school student doing the groundbreaking work that you are, what were some of the major challenges that you had to overcome and how did you deal with them? So I think that the big thing is that You have to switch mindsets, right? Because as a high school student, you are in a classroom and you're learning about work that's already been done and discoveries that have been accomplished by people, um, and your job is just to learn about them and understand them. So I think you have to switch mindsets because when you go into a lab, you're now the one who is responsible for um, making the discoveries and running these experiments yourself and analyzing the data. And so it's not like you're studying established facts and theories and laws, you are the one who has to come up with these data analysis and um, techniques. Lastly, what is one piece of advice that you would give to younger generations who are passionate about pursuing science and also, you know, potentially getting a spot in a lab like you did? I think that the biggest thing 
is just taking that first step. Whatever that first step may be, you know, I think everyone's at different points in terms of if they're interested in doing research, finding that sort of opportunity. But having the courage to advocate for yourself and, you know, ultimately be the driver in terms of your research progress is going to be the most important thing if you want to be successful. So I think that in order to persevere and overcome any problem, you have to be willing to advocate for yourself. Amazing. Now, before we wrap up, where can our listeners go to find more about you, your research, or STS? I mean, if you look up Jason Wang, Regeneron STS, they actually have a website for all of the 40 finalists this year, which is really cool. And all of our pages have a video of us more thoroughly explaining our projects. And also they have little bios about our work and about, you know, what we do outside of research. And so I think that that's a really cool uh, resource and tool if you want to learn more about me and my work. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. It has been so exciting to hear about your achievements, research, and advice. So congratulations again, and I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Yep. Thanks so much, Raina. It's been great being on your show. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into tonight's segment of Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time.